Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. Hey, Todd. How's it going today? Hey, another day in lockdown, but, you know, getting out to pedal, so all, all good on my end. Very cool. Yeah, I've also been, also been riding a little bit. I would say the course variety is a bit down uh, relative to, you know, complete freedom, but, um, you know, there's not much to complain about, honestly, so. Yeah, um, be- beautiful weather here, so. Nice to nice to get out and enjoy. Yeah, it's it's heating up as well. So today we're going to talk about VO2 max, and uh, basically I thought I would just uh, pull up some research papers and you know summarize you know what is VO2 max. And actually, it turns out it's it's a little more complicated than that. And there are actually some open research areas in in this area, and so. Um, I'd like to share those with you, and hopefully you get a better understanding of VO2 max, how it relates to cycling, and then at the end we're going to talk a bit about some of the workouts and some of the workouts that researchers recommend to maximize the increase in VO2 max, and specifically we're going to look at athlete populations. Uh, I assume our listeners are mostly athletes. so Always good to have research that's pertinent to the potential person that's being applied to um, you know athletes versus couch potatoes sort of thing in this in this case so I think some of the fitness studies you see they take couch potatoes and then they have them start training and all of a sudden you see these ridiculous increases right like oh they're you know aerobic capacity increased by 45 percent so oh I should do those intervals like no that's not gonna you're an active cyclist it's not gonna result in a 45 percent gain for you sorry yeah, and I think specifically for VO2 max, it's good to look at um, the initial VO2 max values for the group and look at the average always, and the standard deviation. Always. And they'll have they'll have other metrics for other studies, but you always look at the initial values and and compare those to values you know to see uh, you know what level these uh, patients or what are they uh, test subjects are are actually at. So okay, so let's get started on. Um, First off, let's dissect what VO2 max is. So VO2 is, it stands for the volume of oxygen, volume O2, and it's generally measured in milliliters per minute. And it can also be normalized by weight. So sometimes you'll have something in the, in the range of like 4,000, 3,000, 4,000, that would be unnormalized. And then normalized by weight is in the range of, you know, 30, 40, up to um, you know, the, the maximum volume of oxygen, uh, now that we're moving on to VO2 max is in cyclists about 90 or 95. So, um, depending on if it's, you know, a four digit number or a two digit number, we'll tell you if it's been normalized by weight. So, uh, VO2 max is, um, like I said, the maximum volume of oxygen that a particular athlete, athlete can consume, while doing exercise. So um, the best way to show this is, I guess, through an example. The classic test is the ramp test. So you start at 100 watts. Every 30 seconds or every minute, you go up by 20 watts until you fall on the floor gasping for air. And the point of this is... um, Well, now now you missed an important part. While you're doing this, if you're doing it in a proper laboratory setting... You have your nose pinched shut and you're breathing through a tube that's analyzing the gases going in and out. Yeah, so, so not it's only super uncomfortable. Yeah, not only are you sweating in a tiny laboratory, 
um, yeah, you have your nose pinched. They're measuring the amount of oxygen uh, exchanging through your mouth while you're doing this effort. And um, if you look at the graph of how much oxygen you're consuming, it is linear while you're aerobic. So, you know, 100 watts to 200 watts, you will see, you know, a, ni a nice linear line. Same with linear to 300, assuming your VO2 max is above 300 watts. And eventually this linear increase will flatten and your VO2 max is the flat portion. And it's, like I said, measured in milliliters per minute. And then they'll normally divide by the rider's weight on the day of the test. So um, VO2 max is just the maximum amount of oxygen that goes in and out when we're doing a maximal effort. And it's interesting because this has been decided by the community as a great metric for the capacity of a cyclist to be competitive or be good at the sport. And, well, and so it's now it's ox not just oxygen in and out, right? It's oxygen actually utilized, right? Because when you measure that, you're actually looking at carbon dioxide out, you know, versus oxygen because there you don't actually use all your oxygen that you breathe in. So yeah. So it's, sorry. It's in tidal in dead space in the lungs and it just gets pushed back out. Yeah. So, so they'll look at the difference in the intake and the output. So you'll yeah. have, you know, it, Coming, coming in, it's about 20% oxygen, and then going out, it's, I actually don't know the number, but say 16%, they'll say, oh, there's a 4% drop-off in oxygen content, and then this is also how much air is flowing through, and they'll do the math and say, this is how much oxygen has been, you know, sort of lost. Consumed. Yeah, yeah, consumed by the body. So... Um, like I said before, the, the peak values, if they're normalized by weight, um, some pros are up 90, 95, but that's actually not that common. I think even Chris Froome is only like 88. He claimed in one of his... Um, only, only 88. Well, I think Cadell Evans was like 96. Um, there are a few uh, riders who are in the mid to high 90s. And um, I remember reading an article about one rider who was like 98 it was the highest anyone had ever recorded and they they ended up dropping out of the sport and um the this a, it's a junior rider from one of the, the i want to say nordic countries is this yeah i think that's i think that's correct so the the big takeaway from the article was that your vo2 max isn't the only thing that matters when you ride and uh maybe we'll get into that a bit more when we get towards the end of the episode so um other references if we're not going to talk about the best of the best is uh, a lot of people will throw around 70 VO2 max for a domestic pro. And uh, if you're a sprinter, maybe 65 you could get away with because VO2 max is less useful if you're doing anaerobic efforts. And um, if you have a VO2 max of 60, you're like a pretty good amateur rider. So um, I think most sedentary people, sedentary men specifically, are like 40, 45, and um, women are a little bit lower, uh, 30, 35. Um, yep. But yeah, say most like the base, the base VO2 max for the population is around 40. Yeah. That's and the expected um, value. One thing to really recognize with this is um, if people like, you know, people love throwing around their VO2 max numbers. And if they got it tested or, you know, the calculated VO2 max, because some software programs will calculate it for you. Um, the, the big thing to remember here is that it's per kilogram body weight. So this guy who, you know, specifically for Northern California, there are some big dudes in the Peloton. They're always going to have a low VO2 max relative to the really lean rider. Uh, 
And so just remember that, you know, sometimes we want your absolute VO2 max as in the, you know, the four digit number. And other times, if we're doing a climbing race, we might want the two digit number. So, um, you know, just realize that the number itself, you know, it's not that useful if you're not going uphill because going uphill is when normalizing by weight is the most useful. I mean, you could say the same of watts, right? Watts per kilogram too is, has a similar, um, exactly like you need to be aware if uh like at the end of the day like the best time trialists in the world are huge like tony martin specifically is uh he's got a lot of muscle mass so his uh his watts per kilo aren't pushing the same numbers as some of these really lean riders and that's you know egan bernal specifically super super lean and that is a reason that his vo2 max is bumped up you know, a little bit more. And, mm-hmm. um, if you want to kind of cheat, you know, cheat, you can also lose weight. And we talked about this in the inside episode is I think my VO2 max went up like 16%, but it was because I lost uh, six kilograms, you know, during base. So it's like, well, yeah, like I lost 9% of my body weight. So of course, right. your, your oxygen processing capacity changed a bit, which is good, but of the 16% increase, a lot of it came from change in body mass. Yep. So um, moving forward, we're actually going to try and focus on the ability, you know, how do we maximize our body's ability to use oxygen as opposed to how to lose weight to artificially boost your VO2 max. So um, we're going to look at the pathway for how oxygen is utilized in the body. And this was from a study where they tried to simulate uh, different workouts and tried to determine through their simulation, which of these workouts is the best for, um, y- you know, like, should I do short efforts, a bunch of short efforts, a few longer efforts, something in between? Should I sprint? Um, there's a lot of these different ways to boost your VO2 max. And they tried to say, what's the best out of these based on the data we have and tried to do a statistical model. So um, they said that You know, the five steps, they had five steps for how we use oxygen. First, you breathe in the oxygen, and that's the conductive transport of the oxygen um, through the air into your lungs. So that's just, you know, going down the hatch. And the next one is the flow of that oxygen into the arterial blood through the lungs and through specifically the alveoli. And if you'll allow me to diverge a little bit, Todd, um, alveoli is also the word for um, the holes in bread. Um, and I assume that's because... Did not know that. Um, that. That's because they're both, you know, probably small holes that oxygen, you know, sits in or, you know, gases sit in. So um, I just thought of... The, I've, I've watched maybe one too many YouTube videos about making bread, but uh, yeah, there's your fun fact for the day. So... Um, yeah, the oxygen will flow into the alveoli, into the arterial blood. And then uh, this third step is actually the most important. And it's the transportation of the oxygen into the cells. So the amount of the volume of oxygen that goes into the cells is the cardiac output times the difference between the arterial blood content and the venous blood content. So specifically, you know, when, when you have arterial blood going into the muscles, Todd, correct me if, if I'm wrong, because um, you are the medical expert of the duo. But when you have 
uh, blood coming in through the arterial, um, what, what ends up happening is a portion of the oxygen in your arterial blood gets absorbed into the cells and it exits the muscle capillaries into the veins and the veins will return back to the, to the heart to reoxygenate the blood. Is that correct? Yes, I think you, you got it most of the way. Yeah, it goes back to the heart and then to the lungs and then, yeah. So um, the measure... So, there, yeah, there's an exchange at the, the capillary bed, right? So like capillary to muscle, then back to the capillary again, which is then the vein on the way out. Yeah. And that's the, the difference occurs there. Right. So when you look at the oxygen levels in the arterial blood, and you look at the oxygen levels in the venous blood, there's a difference in the amount of oxygen between those two areas. And that difference is considered um, trainable by some. And the, the other factor for the volume of oxygen you use is the cardiac output, which is um, your stroke volume times your heart rate. So if you think about the amount of oxygen that's delivered specifically to your muscles, it's the difference between the oxygenation of the fresh blood and the oxygenation of the used blood, which is just how much oxygen has been absorbed into the muscles, times the stroke volume, which is the amount of blood that is pushed through each beat of the heart, times your heart rate. So it's, yep. it's just how much blood is flowing through and how much of that oxygen is being absorbed from that blood. And... Um, this third step is considered the key step in um, your ability to use oxygen for work. So the fourth step quickly is the um, diffusive transport of the oxygen from the muscle capillaries into the mitochondria, and then the utilization of that oxygen in the mitochondria. So um, this study showed they um, referenced a few other studies that said that 50% of the, the reason why your VO2 max isn't as high as it should be is because of this third step, the uh, conductive transport of oxygen to the cells. So if you increase your conductive transport by 10%, you will likely see a 5% increase in VO2 max. And this area is the area of you know, most research. This is um, what all the scientists are interested in. How do we increase the cardiac output? How do we increase the heart rate, the stroke volume? But then also, how do we increase the, the difference in oxygen between the arterial blood and the venous blood, which um, I'm going to refer to as AV diff, because uh, we're actually going to talk about specifically the, the AD, AV diff and um, whether or not you can actually train it. So um, firstly, cardiac output, like I said, it's your heart rate times your stroke volume. So um, we know, Todd, here's a bit of a quiz, what, uh, you know, what training modality allows us to increase our stroke volume that's really good in the winter? So that's your base training, right? Because you're actually increasing the, um, the strength of your left ventricle and it's it's extensibility so there, there's two pieces to that is like how well does your left ventricle fill and then how strongly can it contract and force that blood out and basically effectively empty that chamber right so and, and that's what they show in um 
elite endurance athletes is they can empty that chamber a lot quicker than uh, say a sedentary person. Yep. And uh, yeah. And more completely as well. Right. It's like, it's really empty as opposed to leaving something in the, you know, mm -hmm. in the chamber, you get all the blood out into the circulation. Yep. So, um, if we're focusing on cardiac output and improving our cardiac output, we can get improvements during base period and, you know, focusing on the stroke volume increases, it actually may not increase your VO2 max because your heart rate may decrease with the increased stroke volume and the maximal utilization of utilization of oxygen might not go up, but at least our heart is stronger and we have a higher stroke volume. And then you'll do a high intensity work to try and increase the heart rate back up. So then the net product of the heart rate and the stroke volume increases and you see a net increase in, you know, total cardiac output. Yep. That makes, makes sense to me. That's what I, that's what I remember reading in school at least. Yep. So, um, one review of VO2 max workouts said that there was a, um, if you know R values in statistics, it's essentially how well does a line of best fit match the data accumulated. And they had an R value of 0.938. Wow. Which, that's, uh, that's basically a straight line. That's like almost, I mean, in science, that's pretty hard to get, especially biology, a correlation that's that strong. Yep. So they had a 0.938 correlation between cardiac output and VO2 max. So if you're a coach, if you're an athlete, man, we really need to focus on our cardiac output and really maximize that. That will increase our VO2 max the most. So as I mentioned, there's another area that people believe is trainable, and that is AV diff. Um, like we said, is the difference in the amount of oxygen in your arterial blood, in your venous blood. And um, there was one review that came out that said, we found no association in all of the papers we read between increases in VO2 max and increases in AV diff. And uh, there was a comment on that review. Another paper was released in response, and they basically said, well, you're wrong. And uh, basically, I stumbled on this, this open research topic where, uh, you know, this, this one paper said we found no correlation, and these other scientists released a paper that said, well, actually, we do believe there's a correlation. And they gave some evidence and specifically, the biggest piece of evidence they had was they had 12 untrained women, and these were sedentary women, and they did nine weeks of VO2 max training, and there was no difference in AV diff throughout those nine weeks, but there was a dramatic increase in stroke volume and a dramatic increase in total VO2 max. And then what they did after that was they continued for another 52 weeks, an entire year, and they measured wait, them again. Wait, wait, wait. Go ahead. An entire year of VO2 max training or an entire year of training? Um, I th I think it's it was training at least. Okay. Like, that'd be brutal to do a year of VO2 max intervals. Um, but, but yeah, I also... Continue. Um, I think they train twice or three times a week as well. So not, not um, 360, you know, VO2 max workouts. Um, even if it was, but yeah, I'm not actually sure on uh, what their training modality was, but the big takeaway was that there was no increase in stroke volume and actually a slight decrease in stroke volume after a year in these women, but there was a dramatic increase in AV diff. And the argument is it takes a long time to increase your, 
your muscle's ability to absorb oxygen from the blood. And uh, the the other study that they mentioned in favor of AVDIF is that um, single leg cycling, which we talked about a few episodes ago, and they referenced one of the papers that we actually discussed in our episode, that the paper showed that there was better oxygen utilization and better glycogen metabolism in uh, cyclists who use single leg training. And essentially the single leg training caused the peripheral adaptations and they speculated that if they had tested AV diff in those athletes, it would have also improved. And so there's, they said there are modalities that increase your AV diff. There is evidence that over time, the AV diff becomes the limiter and needs to be trained in reference to these women who trained for an entire year. And essentially, um, we don't know if AV diff is trainable and how you would train it. And... Uh, this is essentially an area that you know needs to be determined more, but it could potentially unlock uh, a new area of training that improves VO2 max even higher. Hmm. Okay, that's that's really interesting. I was trying to like process what's what's going on there and what you know what that means in terms of of training and like just just like mechanistically what what would what needs to happen for that to occur. Yeah, so this is fascinating, and um, I'll tell you a little bit about my thought process. So um, the reviews that were used, or the papers that were used in the review for uh, the paper that said, you know, we saw no difference. The longest VO2 max training interval length was 13 weeks. So they, they only took papers that were less than 13 weeks, and the implication is over a short term, the only thing that improves is your stroke volume. And then, you know, obviously that means, you know, to me that there's a limiter in the short term of your stroke volume, but as your stroke volume improves, 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 it's no longer the the limiter. We're not limited by how much blood passes past the muscle capillaries. We're actually uh, limited by the ability to absorb that oxygen at some point once we train our stroke volume enough. And then what happens is the muscles then are, you know, they need to be trained in order to keep up with the larger stroke volume. And then you end off end up trading, you know, what area is the most fatigued? Well, isn't this sort of where we ended up with the idea of single leg cycling to a certain extent? Right. So, th- I mean, spoiler: if you haven't listened to the single leg cycling episode, um, basically, you know, they saw no increase in VO two max for the cyclists they used because um, they were still limited by the central circulatory system, and the argument is these women eventually were no longer limited by their central circulatory system and they ended up maximally fatiguing the muscles themselves. And then those muscles became more robust in the form of improved AV diff, you know, processing. So this is going to go way back to an old episode we did. Um, I don't know if you remember, Jason, when we talked about uh, blood flow restriction training. Yep, I remember that. So, you know, you wonder if that's possibly one of the underlying mechanisms there. Yeah, so um, just as if you'll allow me to summarize it, um, you essentially would uh, put a band around the top of your quads or something, um, mm-hmm. and essentially you would it would be harder for the blood to be removed from the legs. It would be harder to remove the toxins from your legs, and your body would become more robust to the highly acidic and um, essentially you know dirty 
blood that is accumulating all these toxins as you're working out. And um, you see a lot of peripheral, that's the term that's used in the literature, is peripheral adaptations as a result of the blood flow restriction training. And, yep. and, you, and you wonder if you're pulling out more oxygen from the you know, oxygenated blood that's coming in. Yeah, so so both of these ask the question, you know, are we limited by the circulatory system or are we limited by, you know, the muscles themselves? And it's interesting because uh, the hardest part about this is that, you know, professional athletes don't want to try this stuff. They're not really interested in being test subjects, which makes sense because they need to get paid. So they need to be fit. And if they're going to take uh, 10 weeks or in, you know, the one example, 52 weeks to... Uh, try and test, test, you know, we don't even know if it's going to happen or not. Um, it seems, you know, I, I can see their motivation, but. Um, although, although if there were ever a time yeah. for professional athletes to be test subjects, I think we, I think we know we're, we're in the middle of it. This is the, um, the call to all professional cyclists that we need you for our, um, our rampant speculation. So what, the what I think is happening is, and I said this in the single leg training episode, there are athletes who have maxed out their circulatory adaptations, and their limitation becomes their muscles. And how do we then train the muscles? And we have at this point two ways that may work. And the question is, what kind of person has maxed out their circulatory system? I would say, you know, professional athletes, I would say athletes with less muscle mass. These are the, the same subgroup as we talked about in the single leg cycling episode. All right. I can, I can get behind that. So who, who are we going to get to sign up and poke and prod a little bit in the lab to answer this question? Yeah. So the biggest issue actually is that AV diff is real. It's really invasive to measure AV diff. So, um, it's, you know, also hard to get approval for a study for this area. It's also hard to convince subjects who want to do it. And then also, you know, you have to remember that, uh, you know, these numbers we were throwing around 60, 70 VO2 max, these numbers are all, you know, 90th percentile of the it's hard to, it's hard to find that person as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to wash out 90, 95% of the population and then, you know, there's also other criteria we have to, you know, you can't be too old, you can't be too young. And, and so suddenly, how many people exist within this criteria, and then how many of them are willing to be subjects? And it's, uh, it's really tough, but there seems to be some sort of scientific indication. That's basically what the scientists are arguing is there is some indication that eventually there may be some muscular related uh, limitation if your aerobic system is good enough. And, uh, you know, we don't really know anything more than that at this point. Yeah. All right. And so we have to figure out you know, what's, what's happening between those two, you know, between the, the capillary beds on either side, right? The arterial blood going in and then the venous blood on the way out. And, you know, there are mitochondria in there doing some work, but like, what's, what else is limiting there? And what are the, what's the rate limiting step, I guess? in that process that potentially at the muscle cell level is keeping you from extracting more oxygen than you are currently. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we need some, uh, cellular, cellular biologists or, um, I guess the, you know, the British, um, 
national, you know, science foundation, uh, they seem to be the ones that jump on sports science the quickest. And uh, so I guess someone needs to notify them about this open research area. Them are uh, Australian Institute of Sport, right? They're all, they yep. also tend to be ahead of the curve or certainly leading the pack when it sure. comes to sports science. And, you know, and now we're on the topic, maybe they already have some answers to this and are using them, um, you know, quietly with their own athletes. So uh, it would be interesting to see if we, if there's any indication that professional athletes are doing, uh, you know, peripheral adaptations for their muscles, like, I don't know, any Twitter posts or Instagram stuff, you know, we might need to get some investigative journalism involved as well to see if some people already have this idea that there is some muscular adaptation that has to occur at the very top level to get an increase in VO2 max. Yeah, I mean, I guess one, you know, if you hold the hypothesis around, you know, just, you know, let me just go down the speculative path for a minute here, right? But if perhaps um, blood flow restriction training had the ability to manipulate a VO2 at some point or AV diff, then potentially you should be able to elicit response in VO2 max with that more so than um, not. And I imagine if you got really clever, you could probably uh, do some within subject studies of doing, you know, single leg cycling with uh, blood flow restriction and without and look at differences you know, look at how the two legs behave differently over time. Yeah. You, what you, result you get. You could do leg by leg. And remember we had that one single leg cycling study that, you know, people only trained the right leg and uh, it showed no increase in total VO2 max. But uh, on that topic of how you would have a study, you would start with uh, what, 12 weeks or 15 weeks of traditional VO2 max increase training and then you would have to do one of these muscle-specific modalities to see if that would then generate a greater increase than the control group, which is, which is just continuing to do the typical VO2 max training. And if you're really clever, you do a crossover design where you have them switch at a certain point and see what happens beyond that. Yeah. Right? Like if you, you know, say you came out of the uh, you know, modality group and then you go back to the standard VO2 max training, because of the because of training with the modality can you elicit any further benefit from continuing mm. down that that path and then you put the people who did the traditional training into the modality group and see if they also you know yield an additional benefit yeah that's uh fascinating it's a long, st it's a long study but yeah. It's, you know. the, yeah the biggest thing as well with a lot of these vo2 max um studies is that a lot of people will drop out because they are so long and also they are pretty hard and you know people go ah, i don't really feel like doing more vo2 max and well you just lost I, the data point yeah I, I mean i know i just spewed out this you know study design i would not sign up for that it sounds terrible to be honest with you <laughs> like here yeah. do vo2 max intervals now do some vo2 max intervals with blood flow restriction training oh now stop doing that but keep going and do some more vo2 max like that sounds miserable um so i would not be a subject for that study. Sure. So um, hopefully, you know, I was able to explain what's happening and uh, we really don't know what's going on, I guess, uh, to a certain extent. But um, it is interesting that it seems that 
although this is a point of dispute, it seems that initially we are limited by our central circulatory system, but as we continue to train that and get it better and better, we then become limited by the peripheral adaptations that occur. And I don't know when the crossover occurs. I don't know if the crossover occurs. I don't know how to train your uh, peripheral adaptations better, but uh, these seem to be the next areas for sports scientists to explore. So that's, that's actually super interesting to see, right? Can we, can we squeeze out that little bit extra performance and maybe it's a lot bit extra performance depending on who you are. Yep. So uh, let's move on to, I'm going to talk about another study that I found where it was another review of, this one is actually a pretty large portion of VO2 max interval studies, um, somewhere in the hundreds. And in terms of athlete-specific uh, populations, is a lot lower. That's definitely easier to get studies on. Um, the three groups were healthy, overweight, and athletic populations. So we'll focus on the athletic populations, and I'm going to try and summarize their recommendations for the... Essentially what they did was they had, you know, say, 20 papers, and they compared... Um, they basically grouped them up by the specificity of the workouts that are entailed. So some workouts that are really popular for VO2 max uh, increases to try and stimulate an increase in VO2 max are something like Tabata, which is 40 seconds on, 20 seconds off for four minutes or eight minutes. And essentially you do an all out effort for 40 seconds and then you wait for 20 seconds. And um, another one is 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off, which is where you sprint for 15 seconds, then you get a 15 second break. Another one is uh, tr the just traditional, you know, four minutes at VO2 max or four minutes at 95% of VO2 max, uh, and you do four or six sets of these or however many before your power drops off too much and then you go home. Um, there's a lot of different ways that people try to elicit an increase in VO2 max, but the one big thing is that we're trying to remove the, you know, we're trying to maximally increase the oxygen in the body and increase the oxygen utilization. So all of these include at least VO2 max intensity. And that's the big thing. If you wanna improve your VO2 max, you gotta be doing at least 90% of VO2 max. That's agreed upon by basically all of the scientists in this area. So now the question is, should I do short sprint efforts and take rests? Should I do one long sustained effort? Should I do a few long sustained efforts? There's a few different uh, you know, variables that we can tweak here and see how the VO2 max changes. And so this meta-analysis tried to look at these few different areas and, and decide which of them were the most useful. And did they, you may, you may be about to say this, they, they pulled the results, right, of the different studies? Yeah, as opposed, so yeah. yeah, they did, like, it's essentially an observational study of other studies. Um, so the first one was that the highest increases in VO2 max were associated with long intervals of work and specifically at submaximal intensity. So maximal intensity would be a sprint and submaximal is they mean VO2 max. So they noticed that with intervals of greater than two minutes at about VO2 max elicited the most increases relative to other studies um, in increasing your VO2 max. So I mean, the, the natural interpretation here is that they didn't really find that sprint, these uh, 15 seconds on or Tabata, they didn't really find them as effective as just holding your VO2 max for two minutes or more. 
And the other big area that they found was that high volume of total work per session was a big indicator of total VO2 max increases. So we're looking for uh, essentially 15 minutes of work or more, which I would actually say um, if I was giving an athlete VO2 max intervals, I would want at least 20 minutes of total work. But, um, you know, of course, we're a well-trained population, assuming. So um, if they did, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes of work per session, but, you know, they did maybe they did two sets of four minutes that did not elicit the same response as four sets or yeah, four sets of four minutes, which would be, you know, twice as much work. So uh, that makes sense. And obviously it's going to depend on the, the level of the athlete, right? Some will need more to uh, list that signal. And that's where that power drop off comes in. Yeah. So yeah, a, a, a less well-trained athlete would have uh, less capacity to do the higher volume. But the big takeaway here is that it's, it's actually the total work at the level. You know, the, the total amount of time spent at VO2 max is the biggest determinant of your VO2 max increases, in addition to longer intervals. And um, actually, I speculated about this, that it's likely that the longer intervals cause you to have more time at VO2 max. Because you're you're in you're in the zone longer, and you're sort of settling towards that that number towards that threshold. If you're doing a say five minute interval versus a two minute interval, you you can be more consistent and closer to that target. Is that what you're what you're what you're saying? No, what I'm arguing is that say you're doing 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off. Um, you know, okay, four of these sprints is one minute of mm-hmm. time at or above VO2 max. How many sprints can you do before, you know, I just have to go home. Like I can't even get out of the saddle anymore. And so okay, interesting. Okay. Yep, an athlete would do an athlete, say an athlete could do 40 sprints, which would be very impressive. That's a total of 10, 10 minutes. minutes of total stimulus time versus, you know, right. That's uh, that's like two and a half efforts at, at a four minute at VO2 max. So uh, the reason these are kind of interconnected is the longer intervals allow you to stay at VO2 max for a larger amount of time per session. And so you'll see a higher increase in VO2 max. Well, okay. So then where do you put the research around the kind of efforts that are like 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off, and then you know repeat, repeat several times and your total uh, train volume in that threshold is, you know, comprise that's those 30 seconds are always at VO2 max and it's your total volume is, you know, 20-ish minutes. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, I think that, uh, so the, the difference here is like, say, okay, Tabata is a maximal effort for the 30 yep. or 40 seconds. All, all in. Yep. And I actually last year had done a few intervals where it was, I think the same 40, 20, but the 40 was done at slightly over VO2 max. And the argument there was you could get the same amount or more training time because you got to rest for 20 seconds in between each. And mm-hmm. Um, in those cases, I would say based, you know, just based on what I've read is that you're fine doing those or those might be better. So the important thing here is there are inter-athlete, uh, you know, pros and cons to each of these workout types. So for some athletes, it feels a lot easier to do those 40-20s. But at the end of the day, if they get the same time under load, 
I don't care if they do 40 20s or they do four by four minutes because it seems like the biggest thing is getting the work done as a whole. I, I would agree with that. So um, I'm glad you brought up that point because if I were to give recommendations to someone, I would say do whatever it takes to stay at VO2 max as much as you can. And uh, the big other thing is um, the last thing from the review, and now's a good time to mention it, is that shorter term studies, less than four weeks or four weeks, showed the greatest increase over the control. And the control just did standard endurance training like uh, sweet spot or uh, tempo efforts. And I think the biggest thing with the short term studies is that you don't need, especially as an athlete, you don't need that much to dramatically increase your stroke volume. VO2max should just be used to pop up a little bit. And the benefits start to decay pretty quickly as you go past four, five, six weeks. Yeah, okay. That, yeah. You, you're At that point, you're just accumulating more fatigue than you are doing training benefit. Yeah, so the, the big thing to be careful with here is if you want to maximize your time at VO2max, make sure you don't injure yourself. And as you increase the number of weeks that you do something, four weeks, six weeks, eight, ten, the chance of injury goes up and up each week that you continue to do VO2 max work. And also, you know, yeah, you're just, you know, deadening your legs for your next race. Uh, so really, we want the base training first. We want to get the increases in stroke volume. We want to try and get some of those uh, peripheral adaptations. And then just before we're going to race, we want four to six weeks of, you know, pop, pop to get, you know, that little bit of snap, that little bit of, you know, lactic acid resistance. And, you know, just remind your body that, you know, these are high intensity efforts. Yeah, fair enough. You you want to go fast before you need to go fast, but most of the time you don't actually need to go fast in order to go fast, right? Yeah. And um, actually, as a kind of a personal side note, I, um, I'm i actually, how do I say this? Um, I'm pretty good at VO2 max intervals. I, I raced on the track in college, and I think that's when I spent a lot of time improving them. And uh, relative to my VO2 max, my FTP is... Uh, you know, it leaves something to be desired, as you know they say in the nice way. Um, so I, I personally don't have a lot of trouble getting my VO2 max up. It'll drop down when I do a lot of base, but I'll take two or three weeks of training and it'll go right back up to where I'm happy with. So um, normally they'll say 20% high intensity, 80% slow work. I personally am like 95% slow work and 5% VO2 max because VO2 max comes to me a little more intuitively than the other areas. So there, like I said, there's inter-athlete, um, you know, differences that you have to account for. And, you know, some athletes will adapt to VO2 max more easily. Some will struggle with it more and you need to put more work into it. And uh, just remembering that, you know, each, each rider is unique and we, we have to figure out you know, what we're good at and what we're not and what the demands of the sport are. That's the other thing is I'm really into road racing specifically. The longer ones, three, four hour races, your VO2 max isn't that useful after three hours because you're probably limited by your glycogen utilization. You don't even have enough sugar to do a VO2 max effort. So uh, having a high VO2 max after three and a half hours is, is less useful than uh, if you're doing a one hour crit or a, a hill climb or something like that. Makes makes sense to me. And yet, so, Todd, I don't know about uh, about your situation or 
if you have some experiences with VO2 max you'd like to share? I mean, I don't know that I'm necessarily a terribly fast responder. I mean, I, I think I, I don't know, given a couple of weeks, um, but I would say I like, I tend to go more with the um, shorter intervals, like the 30 seconds and 15 second breaks, because I think that's more um, like mountain biking in many ways, like on, on and off. So for me, that, that to me feels like it has the right specificity for what I'm trying to do in the long run. So I, I tend to live there, especially before, um, before races. But, um, yeah, I mean, the thing I'd always heard and, you know, before I got onto that trend, um, as always around like three minutes for VO2 max was kind of the thing I had learned has been like, that's the, that's a good amount. You can go pretty hard uh, and still, you know, do your recoveries and get in a good volume by doing, you know, seven or eight repeats like that. Yeah, so I actually have in my notes, um, personally, I would recommend the the long efforts that are uh, one continuous block. I would say seven by three minutes or six by four minutes. That's 21 minutes uh, versus 24 minutes of total time. So if you are struggling to make it to the end of the four minutes, drop down to the seven by three minutes and it'll get you about the same total time, uh, but it's just a little bit easier to do three minutes than four. Yep, totally. Totally fair. I think I, I can't disagree with you on that. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I have for the episode. Um, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, I'm sorry I don't have more answers, just a lot of kind of open questions. Um, but if we stick to the stuff we know, um, you know, time under load is the biggest thing. Yep, for, for, many, for many things, uh, time, time under load matters. So, so uh, is that... That's all we have for, yeah. for VO2 max for, for now, at least. Um, as, as always, if you enjoy our podcast or have feedback, please let us, let us know. We do appreciate that and take it seriously. Uh, if you do would like to leave us a review wherever you listen, we wouldn't mind that as well. And, and if that's it until next time, keep the rubber side down. <laughs>